Hello, and welcome to the Quadcast, brought to you by the Mary Christie Foundation, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Foundation and the host of the Quadcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Julio Frank, the president of the University of Miami who is here to talk to us about student health and wellness during these extraordinary times. Welcome, Dr. Frank. Hello, Marjorie. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad to be talking to you again. It's been a while since we last spoke. I must say, I'm jealous. I'm imagining that you're in Miami, and I'm here in Boston. We have about a half a foot of snow. Yes, no, the weather here is really nice. This is the best time of the year. I, I can dream. So a little little bit of background for our listeners. Dr. Frank has been president of the University of Miami since 2015. And before that, he was the dean of the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Before that, he was Mexico's minister of health. So Dr. Frank, in some ways, you are uniquely qualified to be leading a university's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. But I'm sure these are unprecedented times, even for you and in, in your experience. My first question is just, we'd love to hear a little bit more about your response to the pandemic at U- Miami and how things are going. Well, as, as you said, I mean, this happens to be my field of professional expertise. I've devoted my professional life to global public health. I've worked also at the World Health Organization, at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I've been, as a technocrat, uh, federal minister or secretary of health in, in, in Mexico, and I've been dean of a school of public health. So this is what I do from a professional point of view. I'm now president of a university, but I was able to mobilize my professional expertise in this particular emergency. And I've done what what we do in public health. First of all, we follow the science. We gather the evidence. And secondly, we execute based on data and knowing that particularly on a pandemic, you need to be constantly adjusting the response. This is the fifth pandemic that I have been involved in in some decision-making situation. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, this has been my career. But I have to say this one, Marjorie, is unlike anything else I have seen before, both because of the extent and the depth of the harm caused by this particular strain of coronavirus that we are dealing with. It's truly unprecedented. So it's required every element of preparedness and, and response that we can, we can master. The essential defining characteristic of a pandemic that's caused by a novel pathogen, by a new microorganism, the essential characteristic is uncertainty. This is the first time that humans are dealing with this particular virus. And therefore, from the outset, we are learning as we go. That uncertainty creates a lot of anxiety. That has a lot to do also with with the main focus on, on mental health. But more broadly, uncertainty needs to be dealt with from the point of view of those who are responsible in articulating a response by looking closely at the data and doing, again, what we are training public health to do, which is to look at the data from a few days before. What we're seeing today is probably determined in a pandemic by events, in the case of this particular virus, happening two weeks before. And then you, you need to be understanding and expecting that what you do today will have an impact down the line. You need to have that time perspective. So that's the approach we've taken, science-driven. We developed a strategy that we call an adaptive and responsive strategy. Adaptive because there's a lot of things here that are not under our control, like decisions made by government, that local government 
state government, federal government, international organizations. So we need to be adapting to those decisions. And it needs to be responsive, recognizing that different students have different needs and our approach has to be holistic in, in that respect. In, in March of 2020, when, when it, it was declared a pandemic, we completed the spring semester online. And then we did a very careful analysis and decided to reopen for in-person instruction in the fall of 2020. We managed to do that successfully, applying the best evidence, doing making major investments in preparing the campus, in upgrading our testing capabilities, in deploying a very uh, robust testing and, tra- and contact tracing operation, and in instituting a regime with very clear rules like mandatory use of face covering in every public space, indoor or outdoor, safe distancing. We changed filtering systems or filtering systems in classrooms. We created spacing, avoidance of any large gatherings, the standard public health protocols. So in the end, we managed, uh, we had, of course, cases. We knew there would be cases. We have a public dashboard. And in the end, we were not able, after the entire fall semester, to document one single case of classroom transmission of disease. We're now opening again under even more challenging circumstances because of the seasonality associated with the virus. The fact that the students, like everybody else, is experiencing COVID fatigue, this, this you know, behavioral fatigue where it's very hard to contain and, and, and keep constraining and making some sacrifices in your daily life for such a long period of time. And then, of course, the threat of these uh, variants of the virus, which are more contagious. On the bright side, of course, we now have the prospect of vaccines. There is some light at the at the end of the COVID tunnel, for sure. I wanted to ask you about your students' response, Dr. Frank. Before we talk about mental health, which I, I do want to ask you about, I, I'm not at all surprised that your mitigation protocols have been robust, given your experience at the university. What's your perception of how the students have responded to that? Were you surprised at all by the behavior? As you said, I understand about behavior fatigue, but what was your impression of how the students responded to the protocols you put in place? Yes, the first thing we did was offer a choice. And I think we were one of the first universities that didn't even, you know, just decree that we would be continue to be fully online or open, but with us defining which student groups could be on campus. We offered a choice. And we said, if you have an, an underlying medical condition, you should not come on, on campus. We'll have a robust and good alternative of a fully online semester, but stay at home if you have an underlying medical condition. That's a risk factor for, for COVID-19. Then there were students who didn't have a choice. These were the international students, many of whom couldn't just travel. There were no visas. There were no flights on campus. So they had to follow on, online. But for everybody else, we said, you have a choice. If you decide not to come because you don't feel safe, we will respect. You don't need to explain anything. And we will offer you a high-quality education. But if you decide to come on campus, here are the rules. And it was a very clear set of rules. And then we said, we will use three ways of enforcing the rules, promoting the adherence to the rules. It's the rules I just mentioned. Number one, which I hope is the most important one, Persuasion through inspiration, by explaining why you need to wear a face cover, why you need to keep distance. We hope that you will be inspired to do something not just for yourself, but for your classmates, for the rest of the community, for your loved ones. Number two, positive peer pressure. We created a program with 75, we call them public health ambassadors, students who received actually training to in a firm, but, you know, uh, respectful way entice their peers or other students 
to follow the rules if they saw someone who was not complying and act, you know, in general as education agents. And number three, the way of, of enforcing this, credible threat of sanctions if you violate the rules. So uh, zero tolerance to... So those were the three, persuasion through inspiration, positive peer pressure, and zero tolerance. I have to say that the vast majority, and by that I mean in the fall semester, about 98% of the students follow the rules. There's always that 2%. Now, in a virus that's highly contagious, 2% can be a lot of, of people and can put everything at risk for everybody else. So, so we tried very hard to, to make sure that we could detect them. Most of the transmission happened off campus, so it was hard to detect, but we tried to do those protocols. It's very interesting that we started seeing the behavioral fatigue even at the end of the fall semester. After Halloween, we, like many other schools, decided to end classes, start us a week earlier and then end classes the Friday before Thanksgiving so students didn't have to fly back and forth like in previous years. So those last three weeks, of the, the first three weeks of November, which were the last three weeks of, of the semester, we had as many cases as in the preceding 13 weeks of the semester. The students then went away for nine weeks because we started the spring semester a week later. And again, to cancel the spring break so that, again, we don't have students flying in and back, back and forth. It is hard to sustain that level of discipline. We're trying very hard. We grew the number of public health ambassadors from 75 to 100. In the nine weeks, we opt our testing protocols. We're testing more and more frequently, providing results within 24 hours, basically testing with PCR tests once a week. We're also at this point doing some protocols to validate a cheaper and more frequent test. But we are doing the gold standard, the PCR, once a week for all students with 24-hour turnaround. So our contact tracing is, is robust. So I would say Marjorie, the students have behaved the vast majority in an exemplary way. Actually, as I thought about why we should open for in-person instruction back in the fall, it was a controversial decision. I thought two things. If we decide not even to try, first of all, I would be basically saying that everything that I've trained in, I don't believe in. I don't believe in public health. I don't believe that you can actually do this safely if you follow the public health practices that stem from scientific evidence. So I would say I don't believe in science. I don't believe in public health. But most importantly, I would say, if we did, didn't even try, that we couldn't trust young people to behave the right way. And that just struck me as essentially wrong. Because just think about this. this the generation of students who are at college, of college, 18 to 24, more or less, that's the generation that's fought most wars. That's the generation that's led many of the social movements, the activism that has led to many, many important positive transformations, very often at risk of their own lives. And if we are saying we can't trust young people of this generation to sacrifice some of the social aspects of their college experience for a larger goal, which is you know the, a better educational experience, even without that, by being able to be on campus, and then the larger goal of health and safety, I think we're making a very sad statement about young people. At this point, I would say the vast majority of students complied, they're, they're, uh, although not, I mean, it's not smooth and it's not without issues. Some of those are mental health issues because being so constrained does take a toll. But we need to persevere in the message of trusting young people, trusting the science so that we can continue to um, coexist with the virus 
while the vaccine provides a more permanent solution and continue to apply our best judgment based on science. Going forward, those are outstanding points. I love what you said about expectations that we put on young people from the work that we do here at the foundation, but also as a parent. I think that's an excellent point. They, I think in many cases, have surprised us beyond our expectations. And that speaks to resiliency, I think, as well, which is one of the big issues that I know we've been talking about in college student mental health. But let's talk a little bit about about strategies for what is no doubt some of the impact of the isolation And as you say, the fatigue around having to be disciplined with your behavior when you're young and and used to doing much different things on college campuses, certainly regular routines, athletics, being with your friends. So I I know you know of the American Council on Education's latest Pulse Point survey. You probably participated in it that showed that that presidents' concern for for their students' mental health. Of those that responded, nearly 70% of presidents identified student mental health as among their most pressing concerns. You know, the data continue to validate this. ACHA and Healthy Minds together reported that the prevalence of depression among college students has increased since the pandemic compared to the fall of 2019, which, as you know, rates were already at a disturbingly high level. So you overlay that with the economic hardship and racial trauma experienced by a large percentage of students over this past year. And you you can really see where this concern is coming from on the part of presidents like yourself and your peers. So that's a lot uh, to, to lay out there. But I wanted to talk, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you are specifically focusing on the mental health aspect, because I know you take a public health approach to that too. So I'll just stop there. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, mental health is a huge arena for public health, for the public health approach. Public health approach is means you take a comprehensive approach. You look obviously at the individual student, but you also understand that they're part of a population and you understand that dynamic. So you not only look at students who ask for help, but you try to also understand the risk factors that may be affecting those who, who do not ask for help, maybe because they don't have access, but, but who are nonetheless at risk. And the other thing in, in public health is you like to be anticipatory. We like to be pro, to proactively anticipate problems, not wait until they they, they show up. Now, a pandemic is an extraordinary circumstance. I already mentioned it's full of uncertainty. But students and the rest of the population, it's a very, very much of an anxiety-provoking uh, situation because we sort of lose control over a lot of daily aspects of our lives. The fact that we can't go out or if we're out, we, 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 we need to uh, exhibit or, or, the, or, or adhere to special protocols and the fact that we don't know exactly where things are going, we're learning as we go. All of that just makes for a very complicated situation. I mean, what we, we did was that in the we had emergency preparedness plans. They do include mental health aspects. As we were getting the news in January of 2020, and this looked like an emergency, we immediately put together a team. We started meeting. Obviously, our vice president for student affairs, Dr. Patricia Whiteley, who's absolutely superb, one of the most experienced vice presidents for student affairs, was a key part and continues to be a crucial part of, of, of that team. And we had the health and well-being of our students as our number one priority. And that very much included mental health. So it started by, uh, as this became a pandemic and we realized what we were up to, uh, and especially when we decided to continue on with in-person instruction, the, f- the first thing was to make resources available virtually. And this was even in the spring of 2020, 
when we completed the semester online. Pivoting to more of a telehealth approach was important. We continued with the measures we had before the pandemic, like a 24-7 counseling hotline for students, a very robust on-call staffing model. These were already there, but we strengthened those. We added resources for that. And then we had to supplement once we reopened in the fall with more help for students who had to be quarantined or isolated because they either tested positive or they were a close contact to, to someone. And that was a new experience for us. We, we hadn't had that for, for such a, a long period of time. And the isolation and quarantining itself poses a number of mental health challenges because, you know, as the name implies, you are isolated. We developed some telehealth protocols where nurse practitioners would be checking in and we made the counseling centers resources available. In general, I, I would tell you we, we've seen a, an increase in, in case management, and we've also seen an increase in, in student conduct and discipline matters, but the type of cases are changing. I mean, they're much less a result of alcohol uh, abuse, for example, and it's been more compliance with public health guidelines. We had about 4,500 appointments this past fall semester. This was not that different from a year before, that is before the pandemic. So we've been able to keep up with the demand, even though we've had to offer additional services, especially for for, uh, students who are in in quarantine or in in isolation. Um, One other thing that we implemented before the pandemic and that has served us well, we have something a, a, a reporting tool that's called Keynes. Keynes is the con- contraction for hurricanes, which, as you know, is our athletic name. Keynes Care for Keynes is a reporting tool that allows students to anonymously provide information to friends, classmates, or administrators when they detect that a classmate may be experiencing some issues and m- might require uh, support a critical moment. And that, that's proven to, to be helpful in intervening in a timely fashion. It's obviously a very respectful process, both for the student who, who expressed a concern about a fellow student and then obviously for, for the person involved. And then finally, I, have, I, I would say that we've been mindful about the additional stress posed by financial challenges because obviously the public health crisis has led to an economic crisis and many people have have uh, seen their incomes substantially reduced. So we we tried, again, proactively to work with financial aid to meet as many needs as, as possible. I can't help but think, it, as you're describing your strategies, one of the things we've talked about before in our work is is taking a public health approach to, to mental health on campus. And it sounds like, particularly through that new support system, that you're implementing those kinds of strategies. Would you say that's true in terms of making the mental health something that the entire community is really responsible for? Would you say that, that that's sort of what's evolving during these these really very, as you say, alarming and disorienting times? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the key message in a pandemic, but I think it's applicable to any public health issue, is we're in it together. Uh, you know, it's, it's a great example, which is another, I mean, this is an opportunity for civic education for our students that I, I you know, once in a lifetime. This is an opportunity to illustrate a fundamental principle, which is the principle of reciprocity, the principle of mutuality. For example, what happens when you wear a face covering? It protects you, but more importantly, it protects the others. It has two effects, but actually it's the protection of the others that is actually more important. 
And in public health crisis, particularly when it's an infectious disease like a pandemic, taking care of yourself also helps take care of others. Because if you do not get infected, you cannot transmit the infection to others. And if you take care of others that they don't get infected, you are protecting yourself. So this is an opportunity to illustrate that concept of reciprocity and mutuality. We care for each other. And that's been the message very much in line with what you're saying. It is a community effort. You know, even vaccinating, you might think, well, that happened in the labs. You know, scientists were working for decades to create the basic research that then, you know, these companies have been able to, to transform into a vaccine in record time, which is the, one of the brightest aspects of the pandemic. Now we have the vaccine. We just need to call people and we will apply the vaccine and they just passively sit there and get the vaccine. That's not true. People need to be persuaded. There's a choice we made. We need to understand that when I get a vaccine, I am for sure protecting myself. I'm protecting the others as well because now I'm not susceptible. Now I cannot give you COVID-19. And if we all do our part, we will reach this so-called herd immunity. If, you know, 75% of us all decide to get vaccinated, we will break the transmission and help everyone. So that idea of, of, of reciprocity and mutuality as fundamental values is one opportunity that we have in the pandemic to, to educate our students in that regard. And hopefully that will be a lesson for the rest of their lives and for many other situations. Again, a, a great point, and I can't help but wonder if it may, this is Silver Linings, impact some of the sense of isolation and a lack of belonging that some of the students have been reporting relative to their anxiety and depression, this sense that we're all in it together and there is a higher purpose here in terms of your own individual responsibility and your role as a member of a community. I wanted to ask you about the vaccination program. I, I think that is going to be obviously an, another enormous operation on campuses. Tell us a little bit about what's happening at U Miami in that front. Well, you know, we are a comprehensive research university with a with a large academic health system, actually the only academic health system in South Florida. And so th that type of university, we play three roles in a situation like a pandemic. First of all, of course, we need to protect our own community of students, faculty, and staff. This is a lot of what we've been talking so far. But secondly, we have two other roles. First of all, we are a provider of healthcare as the, as the only academic health system in South Florida. We actually provide the most sophisticated, advanced, complex care. And we've been on the front lines. Our doctors, nurses, and other health workers have been frontline workers in treating COVID-19 patients. And then third, because we are a research university, we have been developing a lot of the research that is leading to tests, therapeutics, and vaccines. In addition to basic research that's been going on for quite a while on viral diseases and, and, and other relevant topics, we were directly involved in some of the uh, stage three clinical trials, both for the Moderna vaccine and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So we've been there doing or being part of the network of places where those vaccines were, got tested. Now we are also, because we're a healthcare provider, provider, providing vaccines to our community, internal community to the university, but also to the larger community that we serve as our patients. So we're very much on, on all of those fronts. With respect to, to the vaccination efforts, first of all, even with some health workers, there's a proportion that are still hesitant. And one of the big things we need to do is continue to educate people. Some people say how, you know, I don't like how fast the vaccine was developed, which of course I 
look at it as one of the brightest spots of the pandemic. It's created unprecedented levels of collaboration among scientists from all over the world, from every sector, universities, government, private industry, to produce these vaccines. But we need to understand that behind the vaccine, that yes, it's been record time in a year since we sequenced the genome of the virus to the first vaccines being applied, it's been less than a year. That's record time. But behind that, there are decades, literally decades of basic research that allow us to understand how this virus attacks the human body and how the human body responds. So that was not rushed. That's decades of investing in research that now gives us a product that is highly safe and efficacious. So educating our own community is very important, trying to get everyone uh, vaccinated. We are following the federal and state guidelines, starting with uh, people who are most exposed, like frontline health workers, all of our health workforce has now been vaccinated, except those who don't want to, and we're working on persuading them, of course. Then we've gone through the general population, people over 65, and and it's now moved to anyone between 18 and up who has risk factors. And we're moving through the different groups. I am heartened by the uh, faster uh, speed of vaccination, Because let's face it, healthy students are not going to be the first group. Actually, they're going to be the last group to be vaccinated. So the faster uh, we can go through the priority groups, which have either higher exposure, like frontline health workers, or higher vulnerability, like people over 65 or people with underlying medical conditions, the faster we can go through those groups, the sooner we'll get to the students. The fact that the U.S. is now applying 1.3 million vaccines a day is excellent. The very ambitious plans laid out by the Biden administration to scale up and go even faster is great. We're now in what's been aptly pitted as as the race between vaccines and variants. we got to hurry up because the longer we take, the more the chance that that serious mutations happen. And so we got to beat the variants. We already are seeing these three variants that are much more contagious. We've got to speed this up, and we're doing our part uh, in, in, in each of those three roles I described. And as you say, public education has such a big a part to play in that, both from the, the protocols around the mitigation, but certainly in terms of the vaccine rollout. So that is a, a great, important point and also important to public health. I, I know you have had enormous experience with public health crises, as you said, but what is it about this experience with COVID-19, particularly in your position as a college president, that you would say are some of the biggest lessons learned from this particular experience? Sure. I think our challenge is not just to go to to to, to, to emerge from this into a new normal, as it's been called, but a better normal. We have almost, I would say, the moral duty. We owe it to people who have suffered so much, people who have died, people who have lost their livelihoods, to actually not just go back to the th- way things were before, to, but to build a better normal. And that means learning the lessons. To me, one of the most striking issues is how the pandemic has accelerated some trends. Some of those are positive, and we need to make sure we don't fall back. For example, in education, it didn't create educational innovation, but we've gained in 10 months what it would have normally taken us 10 years to achieve in terms of faculty embracing and becoming adept at the the use, for example, of online technologies. 
we now need to, 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 to apply them not as an emergency, which is what we've been doing all this time, but in a more thoughtful, uh, pedagogically driven approach where we blend the optimal technologies. But that's one area of innovation that we shouldn't lose the ground we won during the pandemic. Same thing with telehealth. We are now doing in our academic health system the, the, the number of visits that it used to take us, um, that we used to deliver in a month, we're now doing in a day. Would be a shame to go back. Same thing with tele, telework. We don't need to go back. I'm not going back to my travel schedule from before the pandemic. I've discovered that I can do a lot of things remotely much, much better. So preserving what we've changed and then also asking ourselves, what were the lessons of things that cannot happen again? And I would say there's two things that cannot happen again. First of all, we can't continue this cycle, which is what frustrates us in, in global public health, where you know we have a, a pandemic and then all this attention and resources, but then as soon as the acute crisis goes away, we all forget about it. This pandemic caught us in an incredible level of lack of preparedness, and it cannot happen again. With a minuscule and infinitesimal fraction of what's been lost not just in lives, but what's been lost to the global economy, we should be able to fund a robust, permanent, preparedness and responsive platform for responding to the next pandemic. There will be other pandemics. So we just can't go back to this cycle where we forget about it because we're now through the crisis and just waiting for the next crisis. The pandemic is like climate change. It stems from the way we relate to the planet in unsustainable ways, invading, invading habitats of other species, which is how these viruses jump the species barrier. We've got to do more to protect our planet, and we've got to be more to be better prepared for the next pandemic than we've been in the past. And the second big thing that can't happen again is the pandemic just exposed in a dramatic way underlying elements of social inequality. They were there. They were not created by the pandemic, but the pandemic magnified them brought it to daylight in a way. And part of that has been, you know, the, the movements for racial justice. We need to capitalize on that to make real sustained progress on the underlying elements of inequality. We know that Black and Latino communities are getting sick at higher rates, are dying at higher rates, and yet are being vaccinated at lower rates than the rest. That is just not acceptable. And if the pandemic has taught us something, just like it is environmentally unsustainable to keep invading habitats and, and, and then being exposed to these novel viruses, it is socially unsustainable to live in societies where there are such divides. The pandemic really needs to come to fuel, as it is fueling, a reckoning and the need to repair some of those fractures in the social fabric so that we are better prepared as a society, uh, we're stronger, and, and we restore uh, some of those elements of, of social, and including racial injustice. Dr. Frank, those are amazing insights. I, I have to say, I, I have loved this conversation and I have learned so much, and I, I'm sure our listeners have too. So thank you so much for all of that wisdom. Julio Frank, president of the University of Miami, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Marjorie. This has been The Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Foundation. To learn more about our work, go to marychristiefoundation.org, where you can sign up for our other programs, the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review in your favorite podcast player. 
Thanks so much for listening. 